So I got a text this week from a brother who sent me a link to a video, a live video published by Apologia Studios in which they were refuting some uh, comments made towards theonomy and postmillennialism and Pastor Emilio, you were the subject of this uh, sermon that uh, you delivered about um, the book of Isaiah, in which you just touched a little bit on postmillennialism and theonomy, and uh, you were the subject of this video published by Apologia. So to kick things off, any comments that you would like to make with reference to that video? Yeah, I think it's something that probably will require a full response, but... I don't know. I, I, I was listening to it live. I was interacting with a chat and um, definitely some things stood out to me that, oh, I don't know, kind of what I feared in terms of misunderstanding, passing in the night, just kind of not really uh, communicating on the same wavelength. I think that's kind of ultimately my fear with something like that. But yeah, I'll say a little bit more about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Maybe the Lord sovereignly ordained this, but today, uh, with episode number five of Christ and Kingdom podcast, we're actually discussing eschatology, which was the main thrust behind the video published by Apologia. Um, and so we're excited to dive into this subject of eschatology. Uh, so far, we are four episodes in, with this being episode number five. And I'm filling in for Ryan Musselman. Uh, he helped with the first four episodes, but now I've been uh, tapped in to sub in for him. So very excited to be here. My name's Jai Navarez, and I'm joined as usual by our brother and my pastor, Emilio Ramos. So eschatology, uh, obviously a lot to discuss, uh, several different views that many Christians hold to. But before we dive deeply into our discussion, Pastor Emilio, let's first lay the groundwork. Uh, obviously, the subject of eschatology is a topic that you'll hear many Christians discussing, maybe even debating, and we want to interact with the subject in a gracious manner. But before we do so, before we dive deeply, let's lay the foundation by defining what eschatology is. So to begin, can you define eschatology for us? Uh, sure. The, the, the word eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos and logos, which means the study of last things. And another important word that people need to know is the word protology, which is the study of first things, protos, logos, the study of first things. Uh, the reason that word is important, as you know, Jai, is because eschatology and protology typically go together. And so I think that that is uh, very important. I think more and more people are learning about that as they study things like biblical theology. So I think as Christians get exposed to biblical theology, they start understanding the importance of the first part of your Bible, which is Genesis, especially Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and how that directly affects the way that you interpret the subject of eschatology uh, moving forward. So, But in eschatology, we definitely are looking at the study of last things. Um, and um, I know that that becomes very important anytime uh, you're talking to somebody about biblical prophecy and how do you understand some of the critical uh, subjects of or passages in scripture, uh, classic passages in scripture about eschatology like Matthew 24, Daniel 9, Revelation 20, you know, passages, uh, you know, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, you know, those, th these kind of issues become very, very important. And of course, Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, our eschatology always has to work in concert with protology. And so I think, uh, as we're thinking preliminary about eschatology, we have to understand that the way we define eschatology from the outset is going to directly impact the way that we proceed uh, to study eschatology. If we think eschatology is just about when's Jesus going to come back? Is there a rapture? Uh, what's the nature of the millennium, let's say, right? Those are very myopic ways to approach eschatology. So I think those are kind of the preliminary issues that I would start off with. And you know what? I would also want to add something to the apologia conversation, 
just for our listeners, right? Um, we mentioned this at the outset, but I didn't really, um, you know, I, di- I didn't really get deeper into uh, exactly what I wanted to say about 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 that. But um, you know, with with apologia, uh, there there are so many issues that are going on there uh, that I think only an in depth conversation is really going to bring any clarity to that. I'll give you just one example, Jai. During that podcast, okay, uh, one of the guys on there, I I don't know who it who the guy is, but one of the guys, the co host on there, has said that that I sounded like a defeated man because I was articulating a particular vision of uh, you know the way that this present evil age functions and i think that's that's a classic example of what happens when you have these presuppositions about eschatology and the way that you actually define the word eschatology itself the way you think about eschatology it will lead you to conclusions like that you know so if you describe the present age as filled with sin and death and 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 heading for judgment does that mean you're a defeatist if you describe eschatology in terms of the triumph of Christ, the victory of Christ? Does, does that mean you are a triumphalist? Uh, those kinds of things are determined on the presuppositions of your eschatology. So uh, probably nothing short of a full response to apologia uh, is in order. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah, of course. And you know, I was saving this question for later, but maybe it's a good time to address it now. I mentioned at the outset of the episode that there are various views on eschatology. Uh-huh. Uh, do you mind calling out those views, uh, stating what they are, what they're referred to as? Um, and maybe after that, we can dive into some of the misunderstandings that are made prevalent from each view. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a fair question. And it's, it's like, you have to have a working understanding of the, of the relevant positions to even really start interacting with eschatology. But in eschatology, you have three major positions on eschatology and they're typically organized around your view of the millennium. And so you have either premillennialism, amillennialism, or postmillennialism. Premillennialism is this idea that in the future, after Jesus returns, we are going to have another literal thousand years of human history on this earth, and that only through that literal millennium of time will the promises to ancient Israel be fulfilled, for example, if you're coming from a dispensational background, uh, so that Israel is in the land, there's a rebuilt temple, Jesus is literally reigning from the throne of David in a, in a, in a, in a Jerusalem that has been uh, radically changed. Uh, it is not necessarily the new Jerusalem, not yet, but it has been radically changed into uh, what they would describe as a partially renewed Jerusalem. Well, we'll come back to that. Uh, and then that, and then after that literal thousand years, then we go into the great white throne judgment and uh, from there, we enter into the eternal state where there will literally be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, that's, you know, at least some of what's uh, going on in premillennialism. In amillennialism, historically, what is called amillennialism, uh, sometimes people say, well, amillennialism is a species of postmillennialism. And I would say, okay, fair enough, in the sense that amillennialism does not believe in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. But amillennialism believes that the reign of Christ is mainly spiritual and that the reign of Christ is essentially going on spiritually in our heart so that we are, in a sense, risen with him, as Paul says. We are seated with him, as Paul says. We are spiritually, therefore, we are reigning with Jesus uh, as our king right now, as our Lord. Um, and so then amillennialism is characterized as that. Now, I'm going to make a bit of a caveat with amillennialism and introduce a, t- a term that I really like, which is millennialism. Anomillennialism is the word, the preposition anno, uh, is the word that means above. And what I'm arguing there is kind of what a lot of theologians are arguing this, but 
I haven't heard the term. Um, I, I don't want to claim any originality here, Jai, but, but, but I do want to say that I like the word anomillennial because I think it's more accurate that the millennium, strictly speaking, is in the presence of Christ and his throne, which is in heaven above, not below. Okay. Is there a spiritual, uh, kind of, uh, a spiritual redemptive uh, element to that, sure, uh, but but we really want to in, in that scheme, and that's where I would subscribe to, is that the millennium is a strict heavenly reign, and I'll come. Maybe we can revisit that here in a moment, and then post millennial post millennialism is the position that, like amillennialism, they're not looking for a literal thousand years, at least not most postmillennialists. Most postmillennialists believe that the millennium is figurative and that it extends either through the entire church age or that it is really speaking about a future time um, where the church is going to enter into what many post-millennialists have called a golden age, which is an age in this world before Jesus returns, where the world is going to be Christianized, the nations are going to be obedient to the gospel, and righteousness and peace and justice will increase. The vast majority of humans will be converted to Jesus Christ. And, uh, and then at some point after that, basically the Great Commission having been completely exhausted at that point, Jesus will then return, and then he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So those are three, some of the basic components to eschatology. And a lot of this stuff, Jai, as you know, is fresh in my mind because I just got done teaching this in Sunday school at our church, and so I have a lot of these eschatological concepts floating around in my head. So, <laughs> you know, it's important to uh, point that out. But that's a good way to start, I think. Yeah. And, and you're right. We just covered this, uh, this long series on eschatology at our church. And so I'm sure many of our members are listening to this podcast and they could tell you where you got those thousand years from. But perhaps we have some listeners that are new to the faith or are just now studying eschatology. So you mentioned a thousand years. All of these different views have the word millennium in it. So where do we get this thousand year language from? Oh, good question. Uh, that's a really good question because, yeah, where does the language of a thousand years come from? It only comes from one passage in the entire Bible, which is Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 3. Uh, well, really, uh, all, all the way to verse 7, uh, because there it says, after the thousand years was over. So the, the Greek word kilios means a thousand and Kiliism is actually historically a view that goes all the way back to the early centuries of the church. It's interesting, but people have actually written on this. As a matter of fact, I remember reading a theological journal where this particular um, uh, this particular uh, uh, student uh, was arguing the case that all three positions, uh, pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, are sort of present uh, some rudiments of them are present all the way back to the beginning of the church. But Kiliism, the idea of a literal thousand years historically by the church has been looked upon as bad doctrine, as false doctrine. And it wasn't really until the rise uh, of dispensationalism right around the 19th century, uh, the turn of the 18th century into the 19th century, the rise of, of dispensationalism, especially Schofield and John Darby, and then we go into Lewis Berry Schaefer and DTS and all of that, uh, the development of a literal thousand years was kind of a, uh, as, as one theologian pointed out, Robert Raymond pointed out that this was a reaction to liberalism. Uh, and to liberalism, not wanting to take the Bible literal, not wanting to take the Bible uh, uh, serious. And so in one sense, you know, the early dispensationalists were do, trying to do something right in trying to take the Bible serious, trying to take the Bible literal and kind of pulling it out of that liberal background of existentialism and saying, no, 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 we, we, we need to interact with the Bible grammatically and we need to take it serious. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of some of the background on the language of a thousand years. Yeah. And you mentioned dispensationalism and I don't want to get 
too caught up in the weeds on this, but I do know that there are two views within premillennialism, and that's the dispensational view and the historic view. So could you maybe flesh those two views out just briefly so that our listeners have some context for premillennialism? Yeah. Uh, when, when you're talking about premillennialism, there are those two camps. There's kind of a, there's kind of a classic, uh, more dispensational approach, uh, that takes a much more literal approach to things like the distinction between Israel and the church, a rebuilt temple, uh, memorial sacrifices in the millennium, a literal thousand years. Whereas, historic premillennialism, let's say in the spirit of Charles Spurgeon, who was a historic premillennialist, let's say in the spirit of, uh, of a Wayne, uh, uh, not Wayne Grudem, but of, um, a John Piper, uh, John Piper would be a historic premillennialist. A uh, James Hamilton from Southern would be a historic premillennialist. Uh, these theologians, uh, and even some progressive dispensationalists, okay, coming out of Dallas, for example, like Craig Blazing and others, they would, Daryl Bach and people like that, they, they too will be arguing for less of a literal, uh, distinction between Israel and the church, no necessary reference to a rebuilt temple and sort of kind of taking out so much of that Jewish emphasis, a Jewish understanding, a Jewish fulfillment. Okay. And really kind of adapting their position to some of reformed eschatology by way of, of, Amillennialism and postmillennialism that doesn't look at those things literally. So uh, those are kind of the two different camps, more of a classic dispensational literal approach and a historic premillennialism, which is which tends to be less literal and a bit more um, a bit more sympathetic towards symbolism uh, in eschatology. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, and and likewise, there are different flavors of postmillennialism. Um, Apologia Studios, you know, not to harp on them too much, but they are also theonomist or reconstructionist in their thought, and that goes hand in hand with the postmillennial eschatological views. So, can you discuss just a little bit on theonomy and reconstructionism and that whole movement? That is an entire episode all of itself. But <laughs> as we're thi- as we're thinking about the relationship between theonomy, let's say, and uh, reconstructionism, as you said, and postmillennialism, there is an interdependence. It, it 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 almost is universally acknowledged, especially among modern day theonomists, right? Because theonomy itself really is sort of a modern novelty. Uh, as much as theonomists want to point back to Puritans and people like that, uh, that may that may make certain uh, claims about the use of the law in civil government. Uh, the reality is is that uh, for the theonomist and reconstructionist idea, it really is historically kind of a novel view. Uh, and really comes into its own in three individuals, Rush Dooney, uh, Greg Bonson, and, uh, and Gary North. And, uh, and what these men have espoused, along with more modern day guys, is that theonomy without postmillennialism is essentially a, a moot point. It's, it's kind of impotent. It, it, as a matter of fact, I think Gary DeMar said exactly that, that theonomy without post-mill is, is impotent. It can't do anything. And so it's utterly dependent on the idea that the world is going to get more and more and more Christianized and that eventually the world is really going to get more, it, it enters into a time of what I like to call virtual universalism, where basically... It's not that every man, woman, and child is going to be saved that has ever existed. That is universalism proper. But virtual universalism is still kind of advancing this idea that at some point in time in this world, the majority of people, the vast majority of people on planet Earth will be Christian. And so... Not only is there an interdependence upon uh, theonomy and postmillennialism, both systems also, Jai, require inordinate amount of time. They require 
not that church history may persist for another few hundred years or a thousand years, a couple thousand years. It is very typical to find theonomists and post-millennialists speak about world history going on as Doug Wilson has advanced, for example, um, hundreds of thousands of years of world history. Um, and, uh, and some people have even pointed out that some post-millennialists even advance the idea of a million years of world history, which obviously reaches ludicrous levels of, <laughs> of, of, of kind of, uh, of projection, you know, because who in the world could even know such a thing? Uh, but the reason why time is so important, of course, is because how are you going to convert 8 billion people who, if you just take, for example, um, the major world religions, um, if you take Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, now I would throw in there Catholicism, uh, I would throw in there all the pseudo-Christian cults, and, as well as paganism, secularism, if atheism. You throw all that in there, you're really looking at about 95% of the world's population, if not probably more like 98%. Um, and how are you going to convert 8 billion people in a lifetime? I mean... It's just not going to happen. So you need to project out uh, so many hundreds of thousands of years to have a realistic grasp of how all the world is going to come under the law of God, let's say. So, so that, that, that's some of the interdependence between these two positions. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's, that's helpful in understanding post-millennialism. Uh, but you're right. I think we should dedicate an episode to uh, addressing theonomy, reconstructionism, uh, civic life for the Christian. Um, just to be fair to those issues, we definitely need to spend much more time uh, solely on those subjects. But uh, we want to focus on eschatology today. And uh, I'm sure our listeners have picked up by now that we are of the amillennial view. And so let us flesh out amillennialism. Uh, so in episode number four, the prior episode, um, you and our brother Ryan discussed reformed theology. And I know in previous episodes, you discussed just how much this podcast is dedicated to maintaining and propagating the deeper Protestant conception. Uh, so how does amillennialism fit in with reformed theology? Can you just flesh that out a little bit for us? That's a tremendous question because it really gets to one of the central burdens of Red Grace Media theologically. And then me personally, just um, as I see things moving forward in, th there's so many um there's so many positions on stuff nowadays that are of a hybrid kind of approach where you have a mixture of things where you have dispensational folks adopting Calvinism and, you know, things like that. And, and, and maybe even, and maybe even affirming a certain degree of covenantalism, like let's say, um, the covenant of redemption, where a lot of premillennialists now are even espousing, uh, the belief in something like the covenant of redemption. Okay. Uh, or something of, of, of that nature. And yet, our burden is to kind of argue for a more consistent, comprehensive, reform theology that takes into account how unique the Calvinist worldview is when we're talking about things like covenant theology, soteriology, biblical theology, and eschatology. And, and so what is amillennialism? Amillennialism really is sort of a subordinate concept to the greater covenantal uh, a scheme or structure of the Bible. And this happens in a number of ways, Jai, but one of the things that is really important is to understand the two-step program of eschatology, the two-age program of eschatology, where uh, that's what we're given from the very beginning of, of, of Genesis in what we would call the covenant of works. 
Why are we all millennialists? Why do we believe in a two-age program? I'll give you an example of this, and maybe if you can identify an example too, Jai. Uh, but if you read a really good book like Kim Riddleboger's book on millennialism, A Case for Millennialism, um, he does an incredible job of demonstrating the logic of a two-age structure. But that two-age structure belongs to the covenant of works. It doesn't just... It doesn't just uh, happen because, well, this is what we find, let's say, in the Apostles, or this is what we find in the Olivet Discourse, or this is what we we find in the Bible, because there's a language about this age and the age to come. That is true. However, even deeper than that, more comprehensive than that, that is what we find in the original protological order. We find Adam being put in the garden with the potential to make one step to a higher form of life. And that is through his personal exact entire, uh, you know, uh, exhaustive obedience, perfect obedience to the law of God and the covenant of works. He would what? He would enter not into a semi eschatological age. He would enter into the age to come through the tree of life. And so even there, at the primal history of the world, we have a this age and the age to come. The heavens and the earth below and heaven above. And so the the two-age structure goes with something that Meredith Klein taught, which was the two registers. There There is the lower register, heaven and earth, the visible heavens, and the visible earth. And then there is the upper register of the highest heavens. And what happens as we approach the consummation is we see the descent of heaven above by way of the new Jerusalem descending below. And what I, a word that I like to use, Jai, is that the lower register is heavenized by the upper register. Now, that, that I think is a distinct feature of amillennialism. You don't get that in premillennialism and you don't get that in postmillennialism. Both, and I know that maybe we'll touch on this further, but both, uh, postmillennialism and premillennialism, I think commit a fundamental error identical error, actually, in, in, in trying to argue for some sort of middle age or semi-eschatological age or a semi-age to come. Um, just recently, um, for example, uh, John MacArthur was talking about the new heavens and the new earth, but because he's a premillennialist, John MacArthur says that the millennium is kind of a renewed heaven and earth. And that's, and that's, uh, and I know what he's talking about because, yeah, if we're going to enter into a literal thousand years that is not quite this present state of affairs because now Jesus is here, but it's not quite heaven yet because the eternal state is yet future. And so the millennium for premillennialism is still an age of sin and death and apostasy and war and, uh, it's still a, a time in which Satan is going to be released again, okay? And Armageddon looms in the horizon, even though Jesus is on earth. Conversely, when you're looking at postmillennialism, you kind of have the same problem because postmillennialism is promising that we are going to enter into a golden age, a golden time, a different era where righteousness will increase and the nations will be obedient to the law of God and the conditions of this life will be different. Um, some post-millennialists are even saying it's going to be so different that you're going to live longer and uh, the world is actually going to change somewhat. Uh, we can expect that the present um, animal kingdom is going to be subdued to certain degrees. 
<laughs> you know, so once again, uh, Jai, we have a, uh, we have in postmillennialism the advancement of a tertium quid, a third thing, a third category, a semi eschatology, not realized eschatology, a semi eschatological state, which really fundamentally becomes a sub eschatological state. And so I would just encourage listeners to go over this again and try to really pin down the nature of the two-age, two-step structure of biblical eschatology rooted in the covenant of works and promised in the, in the biblical, uh, the biblical program for how God is going to take the world from this creation to the new creation. So a lot more can be said on that, but um, but feel free. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to stay on this topic just a little bit longer because it seems to me, just as I'm thinking about it, that the two-age model and uh, the mistake that post-millennials and pre-millennials make in creating this de facto three-age model arises from their hermeneutics. So could you speak a little bit to the hermeneutic that's predominantly used by um, pre-millennial folks, um, specifically the literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic? And could you also speak to um, the post-millennial hermeneutic and how they also take a preterist approach to some portions of scripture? I think that's a fundamental point of distinction between us all as we're talking about our distinct and our uh, respective eschatological positions. It really does have a lot to do with our hermeneutical presuppositions in dispensationalism. Like you said, the literal historical grammatical approach is literally saying that uh, the only thing that matters in any text is what the author intended to the original audience in that original time. And in, and, and, and certainly we have to take the literal grammatical historical approach, uh, very serious. And so we always ask the question of author audience argument. Who's the author? What's going on? What's the, what's the, you know, the, the circumstances? What, you know, who's this author? Why is he writing? Where is he? Uh, etc. Who are the, who's the audience? Uh, what church are we dealing with here? What region of the world? What's the socioeconomic spiritual condition of the times? As the theologians would say, what is the Zitzim Laban? What's the circumstance? In other words, the culture, what is going on? What's the literary milieu of that time? All of those historical aspects are taken into account. And then what is the argument? And so I've just alliterated for us a little bit because there's author, audience, and argument. And that certainly has to be taken into account when we do our exegesis. But we also have to take into account what Reformed theology has always advanced, which is known as a redemptive historical approach to hermeneutics, that every given text has its immediate fulfillment and import. And especially as you're thinking about the Old Testament, that does not mean, however, that that, that uh, message to by that author to that audience doesn't have yet a future, more mature eschatological fulfillment that is just as important to the original audience. And here's an important term, Ajay. And that actually what we have in these ancient prophecies, let's say, is a per se reading of scripture. Per se just means original intent. That originally, the original intent by the original author to the original audience in the original argument is originally meant for a future fulfillment as well. I think that's just, um, I just think that is just the most sane way of reading your Bible, uh, that takes into account, uh, the divine authorship of scripture, the fact that the Bible is written by one author, God, and that takes into account the theological interpretation of scripture. Uh, 
And that is that we interpret any one scripture in a canonical fashion. This is, re- this is reformed hermeneutics. This is the analogia fide. This is the analogy of the faith. This is, this is, uh, letting scripture interpret scripture. God is his best interpreter. Uh, from the, from the post-millennial side, as you've pointed out here, preterism is in play. And I think everyone has a bit of preterism in their system. No one denies that in Matthew chapter 24, for example, in the Olivet Discourse, nobody denies that what Jesus was talking about there in, in, uh, in a very direct and immediate fulfillment specifically had to do with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's undeniable. I mean, scripture says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus is absolutely unmistakable about that because uh, he just got done pointing out to the disciples that <laughs> the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples ask him, when are these things going to happen? But that's not all they ask him. They also ask him, and of the end of the age. Now, here kind of comes in a very critical point of distinction. When the disciples ask Jesus about the end of the age, according to post-millennial thought, what Jesus is what Jesus is going to respond to, what the disciples are talking about, and then what Jesus responds to is not the end of the world, but they would say what he was responding to was the end of the old covenant age. We fundamentally disagree. Um, we, can, we can never agree that what is in view there is simply asking Jesus the question, when, when will the old covenant end? When will the, you know, they would say, when will the Jewish era end? Okay. Uh, obviously, the disciples, I think, meant far more than that. And um, the end of the age, I think, corresponds, for example, with Matthew 24, verse 14, where there Jesus takes it to the end of the world, to the, as he says, then the end will come. And so he obviously shows in verse 14, he is taking things all the way to its consummation. Jesus does not leave the church with an eschatology spanning decades. Absolutely not. He leaves the church with an eschatology spanning millennia, going all the way to the consummation proper. And so then what I believe you see in Matthew, for example, is a mixture of preteristic and and, uh, consummate uh, references, where some of it does absolutely apply to the disciples' That generation sees exactly what Jesus is talking about, but yet that generation itself, what they saw was not the emptying of prophecy, but what they saw was the figure, the type, the symbol of the prophecy of the eschaton in total, so that it counts for everything. Because if you don't see it that way, when you do the intertextual work and you bounce around in the New Testament, it becomes nearly indistinguishable which parts of scripture are talking about the second coming and which parts of scripture are talking about what post-millennialists are talking about, which is some sort of judgment coming uh, at 70 AD when, uh, when the temple was destroyed, post-millennialists regard that as a coming of Christ. It becomes indistinguishable. I would say arbitrary at that point, which scriptures are talking about 70 AD, which scriptures are talking about the consummation and really concerning when you start doing the intertextual work, you're starting to really empty out how many scriptures in the New Testament are actually talking about the second coming. And suddenly you find yourself with just a handful of scriptures. Uh, so according to the post-mill position, you're left with only a handful of scriptures that are actually talking about Jesus' return. And uh, I certainly think that is... Um, I, I think that's false, and and uh, and and so this is where we 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 come to certain differences. Yeah, yeah. And one more question that I want to fit in um, as we're coming to a close. I have a few more questions, but one that I think is important, and this goes back to episode number one, where you and our brother Ryan discussed 
pilgrim theology. So um, I know that's a, a subject of this podcast, one that's going to be brought up time and time again throughout the duration of our podcast. So how does the amillennial view tie in with pilgrim theology? I think that um, pilgrim theology finds its true home in a amillennial scheme. And I think in the other schemes, the pilgrim ethic and the pilgrim theology and the pilgrim structure falls apart because um, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, see Hebrews chapter 11 really is sort of the, um, the, the Texas classicus on the issue of pilgrim theology. And then everything that corresponds to Hebrews 11, you know, you're going to find uh, pilgrim theology in Peter, you're going to find it in revelation. You're going to find, you're going to find it all over the place, but really in Hebrews 11, there, once again, we are introduced to this idea. Now, now, very carefully here, we have to, we've got to account for something that in Hebrews 11, we are in intertestamental territory, meaning we are going between the testaments. We're going to Old Testament uh, history, theology, and eschatology, and then, of course, the author of Hebrews writing to his audience were in the New Testament. And so in this intertestamental uh, sort of paradigm, what is the eschatology that comes into view? Well, the eschatology is a, once again, a two-age structure that the patriarchs were looking for only one reality that is eschatological and that was that god had prepared a city that cannot be found in this world right that is so clear from the teaching of hebrews there is no lasting city here and so that immediately we are we are confronted with this idea that there's in a sense the city of man here and now, right? These are cities that Abraham went to and that he left. And if he wanted to, he had the chance to go back to his original city. But that's not the city that Abraham is concerned with. We are clearly told that Abraham is concerned about a city that has foundations. And what that means, uh, Jai, in the context of Hebrews 12, uh, 11 and 12, is that the kind of city that Abraham was looking for could not be shaken. It has foundations because the architect and builder is God. <laughs> and so that city, then we are told in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 16, for example, we are told explicitly was heaven. And so uh, right there and then what we're getting from Hebrews is that Abraham, like us, we're looking for the next stage of eschatology, and it's one step. We go from this city, which in Hebrews, the city of man, in a sense, is described as the wilderness. It is the wilderness of sin, the wilderness of wandering. It is the place where people are laid low and is the place of disobedience. It's the place of apostasy and persecution and trial and oppression and marginalization. And then there is the city to come. There is the heavenly Jerusalem. There's the city of God. And in terms of a, of a pilgrim ethic, um, Hebrews is very clear. God is not ashamed to be called our God. Now, what is that all about? God is not ashamed to be called our God. That is about the promise covenantally to Abraham. That he promises to be what? Our God. <laughs> so that language there is showing us what ties the entire covenantal uh, structure of the Bible together, right? Is this idea of pilgrims who are longing exclusively for their heavenly abode. And if we do that, God is not ashamed to be our covenant God. That is an interpretation that we can supply to Hebrews eleven sixteen, And of course, why? Because this city is what he has prepared for us. Now, that sounds strangely familiar to something we've heard elsewhere in the New Testament. 
that God has prepared a city for us, that reminds us of John 14, where Jesus said, I go what? I go prepare a place for you. (laughs) And then what does Jesus say there? Does he say, um, your world is going to become partially that place I've prepared? No, right? There is absolutely no way to dilute what Jesus is saying there, because Jesus actually says, I will come back for you and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be as well. So there you go again. Jesus is operating on a strict two-age structure of eschatology. So is the book of Hebrews. So is the book of Genesis. So is the book of Revelation. So is the book of Matthew, et cetera, et cetera. To me, in, in, in some ways, I know we're getting close to our time here, Jai. But to me, this 2-8 structure really makes eschatology uh, a lot easier to comprehend because it, it can be so challenging. Yeah, I agree with you. And every time we discuss eschatology, I'm connecting the dots over and over again. And I hope that we've helped our listeners do just that, connect the dots between the amillennial view, reformed theology, pilgrim theology, and the two age model that you presented to us today. So uh, just a few more questions to close us out. Um, I'm sure our listeners will want to study this subject for themselves after listening to this episode, or at least I hope they um, they do. I hope this has garnered some interest. So you mentioned Revelation 20, you mentioned Matthew 24. Are there any other passages that you would recommend our listeners read and study to gain a greater understanding of eschatology? Well, that's a good question. You know, some time ago I preached through First and Second Thessalonians, and those letters obviously are very important for eschatology. But I would, I would direct people uh, to to read those letters uh, in Paul. Maybe a commentary to go along with that would be the IVP commentary by G.K. Beale uh, uh, on uh, on Thessalonians. Uh, because there, G.K. Beale, I think, really hits it out of the park. Obviously, I'm partial to G.K. Beale because he, uh, you know, he is an amillennialist. But I think his uh, what makes Beale so incredibly important is his ability to harmonize uh, these eschatological passages with the Old Testament. And um, if you were to ask me, what's the key? Uh, to eschatology, I would tell you it's the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, what's the key to the book of Revelation? It's the Old Testament. And so to the degree that you're able to harmonize the Old Testament with something like Thessalonians and the book of uh, Revelation, um, to that degree, you will really, uh, I think, be able to build a coherent and co- consistent eschatology. So I think that's where I would lead folks. Yeah. And uh, pastor, as you know, I serve at our bookstore at our church. So I'm familiar with <laughs> yeah, that's many right. of, your, of your book recommendations. And so um, as far as book re- recommendations go, I know Five Points of Amillennialism by Jeffrey Johnson is one that you would recommend. Uh, also, you mentioned A Case for Amillennialism by Kim Riddlebarger earlier. Um, and I know time and time again, you've also recommended uh, a shorter commentary on Revelation by G.K. Beale. Uh, so those three come to mind immediately. Are there any others that you would recommend to our listeners? There's a little book by David uh, Engelsma. Uh, the title of the book is The Church's Hope, The Reformed Doctrine of the End. It's a very simple book to read. Uh, now, um, uh, admittedly, David Inglesma is a bit strident in the book. <laughs> he, he has his own, <laughs> he has his own fights that he's been fighting with different theologians and, and things like that. And sometimes that will come out. Uh, but it's a, I, I recommend it not because it's the most scholarly, not because it's the most, uh, sophisticated and technical and, you know, Greek and Hebrew everywhere. Uh, for that, you're going to have to go to GK Beale and his book on Revelation. But, but, but Inglesma is a very good uh, book that that kind of brings to view uh, some very 
critical issues. And at the same time, Inglesma, uh, I appreciate Inglesma's clarity and his logic. Uh, a lot of times, Ingle, uh, a lot of times we kind of lack that when we're doing our study. We're kind of like, we're having a hard time seeing things clearly. And sometimes it's hard for us to just kind of see things black and white. And his logic is like that sometimes when he deals with a lot of subjects. So I would definitely recommend uh, David Ingalls' uh, uh, book there, the, the Church's Hope, The Reformed Doctrine of the End. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are at the 50 minute mark uh, for our listeners. So let's wrap this up. Pastor Emilio, are there any other closing thoughts that you'd like to share? Oh boy, I would just like to say that um, if, if this entire study of eschatology, you need to really get familiar with protology. You've got to understand the covenantal undergirding of the eschatological debate, that it doesn't begin by debating Matthew 24. Matthew 24, like every other part of scripture, is but a part of the superstructure of the Bible. And to get to that superstructure you have to go from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to Revelation 21 and 22, because there you'll see the harmonization of God's program and what he proposed for man, what he prepared for man from the very beginning and how it is terminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Eschatology is all about Christ. It's all about him. And, uh, and I know we engage in our debates and our banter back and forth, and that's fine. It's necessary, and we'll do it. But we can't ever lose the glorious center of eschatology itself, which is Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom. And that's, that's, that's really um, the way that I'd like to end is just by giving people this Christ-centered vision of eschatology. That's a great question. Amen. What a glorious note to end on. And that wraps up episode number five of Christ and Kingdom, where we just finished discussing eschatology as a teaser for the next episode, episode number six. We will be discussing transhumanism and we'll be answering the question, how does the push for technological singularity relate to the biblical worldview? So stay tuned and thank you for listening. 